You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. Today I'm interviewing Professor Tricia Greenhall, GP, OBE and Professor of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. Tricia has recently published an article in the BMJ entitled Management of Post-Acute COVID-19 in Primary Care. And given the recent outbreaks in Victoria, New South Wales and now Queensland, it comes at a very opportune time. Hi, Tricia, and welcome. Hi, Sean. All right. So, Tricia, I found your article very, very interesting. Can you please tell me in what ways does post-acute COVID manifest in primary care? Well, you could ask in what ways doesn't it manifest because it's one of those conditions that can present in a lot of different ways. So classically, it's the patient who had COVID with a cough and breathlessness and who just isn't better and they come back to you with the cough that's still there, often a dry cough, and also those non-specific post-viral symptoms like fatigue, muscle aches, that kind of thing. But it can present in completely different ways. The patient may not have had much in the way of symptoms acutely, they may not have had a positive swab, and then they come along with, and I'll use the patient's words for it, brain fog, dulling of cognitive function. I actually did a focus group yesterday with 14 doctors who uh, all had post-acute COVID. And uh, one of the guys said there, when you're a doctor, you're working with 12 windows open in your mind, in, in your brain, the whole time, you're multitasking. And he said, now I've got this brain fog with my long COVID, I can only have one window open at a time. There's actually quite a few patients who are more mentally underfunctioning than physically. But then the other thing that seems to come up an awful lot is people just not being able to get back to work. So they've had their three weeks off with COVID, it's dragged into four or five weeks. They've forced themselves back to work and they've really tried And then after four hours at work, they've had to go home and go to bed. So it's that kind of thing. And I think it's very much a a kind of primary care, general practice package of symptoms, because you've really got to personalise the assessment, take a history, starting on day one of your acute COVID, what happened? Did you get better at all? And then how's it been? Sometimes people can relapse and remit. They can be fine for a couple of weeks and it can be worse. So we do need to use our traditional family doctor skills to get the story of what's actually happened to this particular patient. Yeah, it sounds like a a very severe case of post-viral syndrome, really, doesn't it? Well, it does, but that's not how everybody presents. And I think we have to bear in mind that this is not just your standard post-viral syndrome. I had post-viral syndrome once after glandular fever, and that was really nothing much other than fatigue, quite profound fatigue, which gradually got better. Now, one of the key things with managing post-acute COVID is to distinguish the patients who've got that kind of syndrome you know, the tiredness that probably will slowly, slowly, slowly get better from patients who've got an acute or a subacute inflammatory slash thrombotic syndrome. And in the paper, we do describe briefly and we reference 
the research around what is going on at a microscopic level. And some of the papers are quite frightening, you know, when they do uh, MRI scans, for example, on people post-COVID, and they find sort of microthrombi in almost every organ. Now, I don't believe that happens with everybody, but I think if we put our GP hat on and someone comes along, for example, with chest pains persisting six, seven, eight weeks after COVID, what we're doing is distinguishing the patient who may have a pulmonary embolus, angina, you know, the serious chest pain causes from somebody who's got non-specific and probably relatively benign sequelae from the COVID-19. And when you're talking about post-acute COVID-19, you're talking about a specific time frame between three and 12 weeks after the first symptoms of COVID. Can you walk me through why this time period was chosen? Yeah, absolutely. So when we wrote the paper, we dug out all the papers that had been written that were talking about COVID after the first three weeks. And we found about 80 papers. Some of them were preprints. Some of them were only focused on one aspect of it, like dermatology or whatever. Uh, we pulled those all together. And not a single one of those papers had a definition of either post-acute COVID or long COVID or chronic COVID. So we said in the paper, well, look, for the purposes of this paper, we're going to give you our own definition. And where we got that definition from was what is actually clinically relevant to the management of post-COVID as we are currently doing it. So I was working with Matthew Knight, who is a respiratory consultant, and Christina Court, who's a GP, uh, and also a physiotherapist, Maria Buxton. And we said, well, at what point would you as a GP want to possibly get some more tests or refer someone? And the cutoff for that was three weeks. If it's less than three weeks, they're probably just having acute COVID. If, if it's more than three weeks, you're now into the 10% of people who are, who are a bit unlucky, really, because 90% will get better in three weeks. Now, the yeah. 12 weeks was a cutoff for if the person is still breathless, for example, at 12 weeks, it's probably about time to send them to a respiratory consultant for, for some tests for example, a repeat chest x-ray or something like that. But I would emphasize that even in that period of between three and 12 weeks, most of the patients who are in that period are going to get better on their own. You know, it is just the recovery drags on a bit. So you've covered it a little bit already, but as GPs, how can we differentiate between post-acute COVID and some of the other more serious sequelae of COVID, or, or indeed other pathologies? What are the red flags we look for? What are the tests we can do? So we've got a brand new disease. We've got a disease whose long-term prognosis we simply do not know. And also, we're suffering from a dearth of data, particularly in the primary care setting. Absolutely nobody anywhere in the world that I've been able to find has properly monitored what we call an inception cohort. In other words, get a group of 200, 500 patients and follow them up. So we do not have the data on what happens to these patients. So we've got a, a huge amount of uncertainty, which from a research perspective is actually quite exciting. You know, we need to do research into that. But from the clinician's perspective, it means we're groping in the dark slightly. Now, so that's COVID. But actually, 
The people listening to this podcast are seeing patients all the time in primary care with chest pain, fatigue, breathlessness, whatever you like. And they have existing clinical skills that will alert them to things like pericarditis, you know, myocardial infarction, angina, whatever it might be, pulmonary embolus. So in a way, the the tests and the clinical assessment to look at someone with long COVID, you're really using the same skills, the same questions, the same tests that you would with any patient coming into you with something that might be something acute that you would need to refer. And let me tell you a story. I have a son who's a, a junior doctor and he was going for a job interview, actually. And he, he said, Mum, can you give me a test of a clinical case? I said to him, well, you know, I don't really know very much about a lot of the stuff you see, but what about if some patient came into you with two months after COVID and they had chest pain? And he said, well, I don't really know much about long COVID, but I can tell you how I'd investigate a patient with chest pain. So he then proceeded to rattle through all the things that the doctors in A&E would do. And, and he also gave some really good questions that he would ask the patient to distinguish between, you know, for example, cardiac or pulmonary chest pain from musculoskeletal yep. chest pain. And he was really good at that. And then he said, but I don't have any idea what to do for the long COVID. And I said, well, neither do the rest of us. So, <laughs> good point. Um, you see what I mean? And so although yeah. the patient, if they've got a history of COVID and they don't have to have had a positive swab, or a positive antibody test, but if they've got a good history and they're coming along with one of these complications, you sort of think, oh my goodness, I don't know anything about long COVID, but hey, you know about all the other stuff. So yeah. how would you investigate this patient? And I suppose the rider to that is that with long COVID, you've got to have a very, very high index of suspicion if the patient has any kind of prothrombotic state. So, you know, you, you guys will know as, as well as I do what those are, but the older they are, if they've got diabetes, for example, if they've got a history of cancer in the last five years, the sorts of things that would make you suspicious anyway, I would have a pretty low threshold for investigating those patients with the history of COVID thrown in. But there is no specific guidance. It is really the same guidance that you would have for anybody with an acute, potentially cardiac or pulmonary condition. Okay, sort of disturbing, but also, I guess, a little reassuring not having seen any COVID. But good advice. Thank you. Okay, so once we're confident that it is post-acute COVID, as GPs, what can we do to manage it? Okay, so I think you've got to distinguish between the patient who needs to be referred from the patient who doesn't need to be referred. And local practicalities will inform that decision. And, and certainly we were writing our paper for people in the UK who've usually got a hospital within, say, 20 miles or something like that. Well, I, yeah, been, not always the case in Australia. No, yeah. I remember talking to someone who said that the distance for getting a cardiac echo was 3,000 kilometres or something. So I, I, do, I do know. But yeah. um, putting that aside, because that's not something I can advise you on, one of the things we would worry about is deterioration, particularly rapid deterioration. Now, if you've got someone, for example, who's breathless, you know, their breathlessness is gradually, gradually improving. But in the last two days, it's got way, way worse. That doesn't sound right. You know, similarly with fatigue. So what we're sort of saying is, look, 
does the clinical picture suggest that there may have been an acute event? So if someone is getting worse rapidly, either neurologically or potentially with a cardiac problem or with uh, a respiratory problem, so things like new confusion, focal weakness, unexplained chest pain of a cardiac variety, those kind of things, you've got to get them seen pretty quickly. I suppose the other thing people might want to have some advice about is oximetry testing. Now, I would imagine that because many of your listeners are going to be working in what I would call remote areas, and the patients are going to be remote from them, I would imagine that you're probably fairly keen on patients having their own oximeters. Uh, not always, no. Probably, although it's a large country, the majority of the population is in the, the major centres. But a lot of our listeners are still rural, so so we need yeah, to yeah. sort of yeah cover both yeah. bases, I guess. I guess Matthew Knight and I are probably at one extreme of UK doctors in terms of how keen we are on patients monitoring their own oxygen levels with a pulse oximeter at home. I think it's a good idea, so does Matthew Knight. There will be other doctors who say, oh, no, you can't trust what the patient is doing. They might not put it on properly. They might be wearing nail varnish, all that kind of thing. Personally, I think every home should have an oximeter. Everybody should learn to use an oximeter. You can get on the internet and there's loads of videos on YouTube showing you how to use one. I think in any case, we would interpret any reading that the patient gives us in the context of that patient's health literacy and anxiety levels and all that kind of thing. But as a rule of thumb, I would say if you've got a patient with either acute COVID or indeed post-acute COVID, get them to get hold of an oximeter and show them how to use it, get them to send you a photograph of their oximeter reading, you know, that kind of thing. Get the patient having a dialogue and then... What they can do is monitor their oxygen levels. There's a way of doing it, as you can imagine. It's a bit like blood pressure. You want to be sitting down nice and quiet and calm for a few minutes beforehand. You want to have warm hands. You want to make sure the oximeter's got a battery in it that works, that kind of thing. But with all those caveats, if they've got an oximeter reading and it's going 98, 98, 98, 98, you can be pretty sure that there's not a lot wrong with the patient in terms of getting the oxygen into the blood. And it is nice for the patient, and it also will alert you to a deterioration, which is the main Mm. reason we're doing it. Okay, thank you. Very good advice. Now, what about rehabilitation for this cohort of patients? What successes are you seeing with various approaches to rehab? Right. So if the patient has been on intensive care or if they've been hospitalised and needed oxygen, then we are in really a very different space. Those patients almost always need formal pulmonary rehabilitation, just like a patient who has been on intensive care with any kind of pneumonia. That's a specialist field. And we didn't write about that in our article because in a way those patients will be followed up by the secondary care service. So what we now have is the 90% of patients who didn't get admitted to hospital. Many of those are breathless. Uh, Many of them are very deconditioned. Some of them are pretty miserable. Some some are depressed. Question is, should we be sending those to a formal rehab service? And what the rehab people say is, please don't send us everyone because we will become swamped. 
But yeah. also because if the patient is just getting better, often the best thing for them to do is just to do it themselves, like walk 100 yards the first day, 200 yards the second day, and just sort of gradually increase. And it may yeah. be that just the activities of daily living are enough rehab if they didn't have severe lung damage you know that kind of thing but of course in between those two extremes the patient who's come out of ICU and the patient who's just getting better by walking the dog there's going to be a lot of people in the middle somewhere between those zones and I think again it's a it's a matter of clinical judgment it's a matter of patient preference but mainly what the rehab people are doing is teaching proper diaphragmatic breathing which they may have forgotten how to do a bit of cognitive stuff around goal setting motivational stuff and I think the other thing the rehab people do is to monitor progress and send the patient for tests you know either chest x-rays ct scans whatever if that seems to be indicated in my mind I've been thinking about respiratory rehab because certainly in the UK the post-covid rehabilitation services are mainly run by the chest physicians but there is also a cardiac component and actually in our paper we link to a lot of guidelines from cardiology societies now this is all still a little bit controversial but it seems like the more you look for myocardial damage, the more you find it. Patients yeah. can be in heart failure for the first time, you know, all that kind of thing. And there are rules or recommendations for much slower rehabilitation if you think the patient has got a myocardial damage as opposed to just been deconditioned from any very severe illness. So I think it's really hard to kind of be specific because every patient is going to be different. But certainly if you suspect that your patient has had myocarditis, pericarditis, or they've got symptoms of angina, you know, that kind of thing, they need to see a cardiologist before you start rehabilitating them. Thank you. Yeah, another good tip. So finally... If you were to look back to, say, February, March this year and use your retrospectoscope and apply that retrospectoscope to Australia and Australian GPs, what advice would you give us? Okay, so I think that Australia now is perhaps at the same state in the pandemic that the UK was back in February. And I wasn't entirely sure whether that was the case, but let's assume you are. Then we're talking about a possible wave of acute COVID. And the one tip I would give GPs for the wave of acute COVID is when the patient phones up or comes in and they're not well, they've got a history of contact with COVID, it looks like they've got COVID. When you say to them, are you short of breath? And they say, no, do not be reassured by that. Because one of the things that we discovered very painfully in the UK was that patients with acute COVID pneumonia sometimes didn't feel breathless but were profoundly hypoxic. Also, patients might not be hypoxic at rest, but on the minimum, the tiniest of movement would become very hypoxic. One of the GPs we were speaking to yesterday described a patient who pulse oximetry levels were about 94 until they rolled over in bed, and then they went down to 80. Now, there's something weird about COVID that just makes you not particularly aware 
that you are actually fighting for your life in terms of how much oxygen's in your blood. I think any patient who is symptomatic with acute COVID, and it's not just a very mild version, you know, if you think this patient's quite sick, you need to properly assess them. You don't necessarily need to listen to their chest, but you do need to do oximetry and perhaps exertional oximetry, for example, getting them to go from a sitting position to a standing position as many times as they can in a minute and then keep the probe on and see how much it drops. It shouldn't drop at all, mm. likely. Thank you. That's a very good tip. That's the sort of thing you don't read in the B&J. Look, thank you, Trish. I really appreciate your time and I wish you all the best for your research. It really is groundbreaking stuff and I'd recommend people read it. It's called The Management of Post-Acute COVID-19 in Primary Care and it's in the August 2020 edition of the BMJ. So thank you Tricia. Thanks a lot Sean. Mm-hmm.